What drew you to God? What drew you to God originally? Was it your parents? Maybe you grew up in the church. I grew up in the church and grew up in a Christian family, so my whole world was Christian music and Christian friends, and I was homeschooled also, so you know, on top of that means very normal kid. Um, but my whole world was Christianity, and I, that's what originally drew me to God. Uh, maybe it, for you it was a friend. Uh, my wife was really led to Jesus, grew up in a Christian family, but really led to Jesus by uh, someone in young life. Uh, maybe it was someone like that for you that led you to God. Uh, maybe it was uh, suffering or pain in your life that something bad was happening or maybe is happening. Maybe that's why you're here today, that there's pain and sorrow and you are drawn to God because of that. Maybe, again, you're just kind of checking things out and it's because of that. Or maybe it is uh, just wanting to be able to figure out life. Sometimes we come to God because we are getting married or have kids or new kind of challenges and we want the help that faith might bring in our lives. Maybe you have Christian friends or people that you see, wow, they, they really seem to know what to do about babies and about marriage, and I, I kind of want some help with that. And so maybe that is what drew you to faith at one point or right now. There's all sorts of things that can draw us to God. And, and when you are drawn to God, and I don't know kind of where everyone is in the room, so you might be at the beginning of this, or maybe you've been a Christian for many, many years, but when you are drawn to God, eventually then what happens is you experience some good. You experience some emotional good of forgiveness or a removal of kind of shame. You experience peace. You might experience change in your life that is practically different and better. You might experience community. You have just, there's, there's good things that happen. You begin to experience some joy. But it's not a straight shot. Rarely is it a straight shot. I don't, I don't know if I've ever talked to anybody that has said, I was drawn to God, I came to faith, and ever since then, it's all been just awesome. And if you met someone like that, you would say, I don't want to be your friend. Go away. Or you might say, please teach me your magic, right? But I've never, I've never really known anyone that has said life has just been a straight shot. No ups and downs. It's always just been I met God and then life has just been progressively awesome and better every step of the way. Usually, there's some periods where we experience some wandering. We're drawn to God and then maybe in college, there's kind of some wandering, or maybe it's not even wandering like I'm kind of turning away from God, but it's just wandering of I'm drawn to God and then life gets busy, get a job, get a few kids, kind of do some things, and life just gets busy. We're just distracted. Or we have other desires and other pursuits. We're drawn to God. And at one point, it was everything. It was amazing. It was, oh, man, this is changing my life. And then there's other desires, other things that begin to speak to us, other things that begin to pull us. And so there are things that draw us to God, and yet rarely is it a straight shot. We often experience wandering. Let me just ask, and don't, this is not a, this is a rhetorical ask, but where are you right now? Are you feeling, man, I love, I'm close to God, There's the, it's intimate, it's beautiful, I'm, this is transformative, it's everything. Excited about my faith, excited about uh, my, my community, excited about what God's calling me to. Or maybe you feel kind of dry, maybe kind of cold, 
maybe kind of just, eh, just, yeah, okay, this is fine. Maybe you feel, um, maybe you feel that you're not even sure kind of what you believe. Maybe you feel, you know, I am actively wandering away from God. Where are you now? At one point, something drew you to God. Where are you currently? In heart and in actions. God wants us to experience that, that thing that initially drew us. He wants us to experience this joy and this life and this comfort and this power. He, he wants us to experience that with him. That's what he desires for us, the change, the help, the peace that, that we all want. And yet, oftentimes, in order to, to have that, we need to hear a call from God to return. We need to hear a call from God to return because we often wander. And that, that is true in kind of um, like big moments in life. There's these turning points where we need to hear God's voice saying, come back, return. But it's also just true in the middle of our day where we are distracted or where we're busy or where we go this way or where we're kind of thinking about this and we need to hear God's voice, God's call to return. And this is really uh, the series, a short series, just three weeks. We're looking at the book in the Bible called Zephaniah. And it really is this call to God's people to return to him. And this is a rhythm that we need to learn in our life. It's, it's one little book, and yet it's a rhythm and a practice that we need to have all the time because life is rarely a straight shot. Life is rarely just, I was drawn to God and everything's great. We usually need these calls in our life to return, to come back, to come see who he is again, to come experience what he has for us again. We need these in seasons and in the middle of our day, and you won't experience, I won't experience, none of us will experience as a church what God has for us if we don't learn to practice rhythms of return to him. And here's the thing that's going to get in the way, and this is really what we're going to explore today. The thing that gets in the way of us being drawn near to God and returning to him, the thing that blocks that, that stops that, is our sin. And that maybe is obvious in some ways, and yet sin is easily misunderstood. It's easily misunderstood, and so we're going to explore what Zephaniah teaches us about this today, because if we want to experience all that God has for us, we need to experience the power of returning, and yet sin is the thing that can block and get in the way of that. So let's explore this together today, and we'll start with this. How does God feel about our sin? How does God feel about our sin? And we're just going to look at this first verse for a moment. This is really the context that I just want to set up for you so we can understand this together. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of, you know, all these names, who knows if they're being said right, but son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, you can see a theme there, son of Amon, king of Judah. So Zephaniah is a man who is a prophet. A prophet is someone that hears from God and speaks God's word. That's why it says the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah. So they're not just Zephaniah's words. It's God's word that he's bringing through Zephaniah, through a prophet. 
Zephaniah comes from, if you kind of look at this, he comes from a royal line. He's like a distant cousin of the king. Probably, this is just kind of helpful information, probably he's a biracial Jew, the son of Cushy. Cushy is where Ethiopians came from. And so he's probably this biracial Jew, distant cousin of the king. And he is a prophet of God in the days of Josiah, who was a godly king. Zephaniah and Josiah was kind of this team of the king who was seeking to bring godly reform to the the kingdom, and Zephaniah, who was the prophet, speaking and calling people to this reform because there had been about 57, 60 years of really bad kings, people that led the nation astray, people that led the nation to sin against God and brought in idolatry and did not do the things that God said. Amon was a horrible king. The son of Hezekiah was a horrible king. It was all of these, they're, they're coming in the middle of a long line of sin and rebellion against God. And then Josiah and Zephaniah really become these people calling God's people to return, to reform, to come back. After a long line, not just like, oh, it was a bad weekend, but a long decades and decades and decades and decades of sin. Decades and decades and decades of all sorts of evil and rebellion against God. And these two people come to say, okay, return, come back. That's really where we find ourselves. That's the beginning of the context. And all of these names and all of these lands that we'll look at in next week, mainly there will be all these kind of different areas geographically. All of this stuff can seem kind of distant to us. Like I don't know anyone named Cushy. I don't know anyone named, actually, I did know one person named Zephaniah, but a lot of these names and things, I mean, it seems really like, what are we even talking about? And yet, the same issues, the same heart that wanders from God, the same same things that will bring us back to God are the same things that they, they dealt with and the same things that we deal with and the same things, therefore, that we need if we want to learn to return to God and experience all that he has for us. So let me read the whole chapter, the rest of the chapter, and we'll explore this part, how does God feel about our sin? <clears throat> let me back up, hang on. Let me just warn you, okay? This is an intense book. There's your warning. <clears throat> I will completely sweep away everything from the face of the earth. This is the Lord's declaration. I will sweep away people and animals. I will sweep away the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins along with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. This is the Lord's declaration. I will stretch out my hand against Judah, that's his people, his kingdom, and against all the residents of Jerusalem. I will cut off every vestige of Baal, that's a false god, we'll look at that in a minute, from this place. The names of the pagan priests along with the priests. Those who bow and worship on the rooftops to the stars in the sky. Those who bow and pledge loyalty to the Lord, but also pledge loyalty to Milcom, another false god. And those who turn back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. Indeed, the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated his guests. On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials, 
the king's sons, and all who are dressed in foreign clothing. That's not because he doesn't like the style, but it is a representation that they are aligned with those gods. On that day, I will punish all who skip over the threshold. Again, just a weird pagan kind of custom superstition of jumping over the door, probably because you didn't want to get bad spirits to get you or something like that, who fill their master's house with violence and deceit. On that day, this is the Lord's declaration. There will be an outcry from the fish gate, just area of the city, a wailing from the second district and a loud crashing from the hills. Wail, you residents of the hollow, for all the merchants will be silenced. All those loaded with silver will be cut off. And at that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who settle down comfortably, who say to themselves, the Lord will do nothing, good or bad. Their wealth will become plunder and their houses a ruin. They will build houses, but never live in them. Plant vineyards, but never drink their wine. The great day of the Lord is near, near and rapidly approaching. Listen, the day of the Lord, then the warrior's cry is bitter. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and total darkness, a day of ram's horn and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the high corner towers. I will bring distress on mankind, and they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust, and their flesh like dung. Their silver and their gold will be unable to rescue them on the day of the Lord's wrath. The whole earth will be consumed by the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete, yes, a horrifying end of all the inhabitants of the earth. Very inspirational read. Probably none of your favorite verses are in that section of the Bible. You may have never even heard any of the stuff in the Bible there. Not what we normally, maybe that's not what you were expecting when you came to church. You wanted uplifting, positive, encouraging messages. I was reading this and was like, man, this is intense. Like, I don't know any of that that would be used Again, like as an inspirational verse or something that would encourage someone in their day, the only thing I could think of was my son had his first basketball game this week, and I was like, there's some good trash talk in there. You could say to one of the kids, like, I will pour out your blood like dust and your flesh like dung. And the kid would be like, whoa, what is wrong with you? I'm a pastor's kid. You know, I don't know. That's just, that's what I learned at church. It's intense, right? That is heavy stuff. And you probably feel different ways hearing that. Like, ugh, is that God? Is that okay to say? God, I don't know. But here's why we need this passage. Here's why we need this as people. Here's why we need this as a church. Here's why this is so important. Here's why it's in the Bible. Here is why God speaks these kinds of things, which are all over the Bible. It's not unique to this passage. This is part of why it's so important, by the way, to open the Bible and listen to God because we can, we can just kind of land on our favorite inspirational verses. Last week I talked, God wants you happy. This week he wants to pour out your blood like dust. Like, whoa. But if you just kind of lock into particular passages, you miss the whole character of God, the whole scope of who God is and what he speaks. And here's why we need this. Here's why this is so important for us 
to hear because it's easy to think. It is easy to think our sin's not a big deal. It's easy to think what he says here. He says he will search for those who settle down comfortably, who say to themselves, the Lord's not going to do anything, good or bad. God's not really involved. God might see my sin. God might see you know, these ways I live my life. But I'm comfortable. God doesn't really care. God's not really going to be involved or do anything. He's kind of distant. Maybe he's up there, but he doesn't really care about what's going on down here. And so we're just comfortable. It's easy to have that posture. It's easy to feel that way about the sin in our life. It's easy to just kind of think it's not actually that big of a deal. We say things sometimes like, ah, nobody's perfect, which is kind of to say it's not really a big deal. We say things like, don't judge, which means, ah, it's not really that big of a deal. So if you think badly of me, it's actually your fault. We oftentimes look at our sin and think, ah, maybe it's kind of something to laugh about. We even have nicknames for our sin, like, oh, it's a white lie, or it's a work crush, or kind of things like that, where we just kind of downplay our sin's not actually that big of a deal. At least I'm not doing whatever else. You know, thank goodness Hitler existed, because we can always say, at least I'm not Hitler, and I don't really mean thank goodness Hitler existed. I'm just saying he's, it's easy to always be like, oh, at least I'm not a serial killer. At least I don't do this. At least I don't do that. It's easy to look at our sin and downplay it. Or even if we don't say those things, we show it when we continue on in our sin without any really aggressive fighting against it. We show we don't think it's really that big of a deal when we hide it and don't talk about it with other people. When we have patterns and sin in our life that nobody knows about, we're showing, it's not really that big of a deal. I can deal with it myself. We show it when we aren't committed to looking. Jesus uses language like, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off, which he didn't really want everyone walking around handless, but was to say there should be an intensity about looking at the sin and fighting it in our life. But oftentimes, we're just very casual about it. We're very comfortable about it. It's very easy to say, God doesn't really care. He's not really going to do anything. It's not really that big of a deal. It's just kind of my personality. I just woke up on the wrong side of the bed. It's just this. It's just whatever. It's just a bad day. It's just a bad year. It's just 2022. It's just the traffic. It's just easy to say it's not that big of a deal. Do you feel that in yourself at all? Do you see those places where you kind of just are comfortable with where your life and sin is. Maybe you know it's not great, but it's, it, you're comfortable with it. It's kind of like, you know, you have a shirt that you know it doesn't quite fit right, or maybe it's got a little hole in it, but you're comfortable with it. You don't hate it enough to be like, I need to get rid of this thing. And, you know, you, you're like, it's all right. I'm com you know, I know it's got some problems, but I'm, I'm comfortable with it. This is easily a place we can be in with our sin. And I don't say this to shame you or to, to make you feel awful about yourself. But when we read a passage like that, it's obvious to say this. 
God hates your sin. He hates it. God isn't comfortable with your sin. God looks at our sin and hates it, clearly. There is a ferocity of passion that God isn't comfortable at all. God doesn't kind of laugh with us and go, man, again? (laughs) Crazy. He hates our sin. Hates it. There's no way to read a passage like this or all over the Bible and think that in any way God is okay with our sin. These are not often the passages that we hear in Christian songs or, and I, you know, I don't even know how you would have a song about that, but Christian songs or Christian radio or Christian books or even in churches. And so I know this kind of language can make us uncomfortable and yet it's filled in the Bible. Because God wants us to know, I hate your sin. I hate it. When we look at the severity of God's emotion and the action that God is going to take, we see our sin is awful. Our sin is awful. And and when we think about this, let 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 me... maybe help us to think about what this also means. If you think about our justice system, when it's working rightly, then there are certain things that get certain, certain crimes get certain punishments, right? You don't, you don't park 20 minutes too long at the meter and then they say, all right, death penalty, it's over. That, that doesn't happen. And a murderer, you don't go, all right, $50 parking ticket, here you go. Don't do that again. Here's a, we're putting a boot on your car. You're like, what? He killed two people. Yeah, well, he won't be able to drive for a little bit, so that'll teach him. That's not, we, we want the punishment to match the crime, right? So when you listen to all of this about the severity and the intensity of kind of this punishment and wrath and destruction that's going to come upon sin, what does that mean? It means our sin is awful. And it means The reason it's so awful is because God is so good. The reason our sin is so awful is because God has loved us. God is, I mean, this is, he's speaking here to his nation. He's speaking to Judah, his people. God has loved them, been faithful to them, saved them, rescued them, cared for them. And, And if you just think about our lives, same thing. God has loved you. He's cared for you. He's been present. He has walked with you, been patient with you. He has been around in your life. And whatever it is that drew you to God, he drew you to himself. God has pursued you in times of difficulty and sin. He's forgiven you. God has done all of this. He is so good. And when we sin, it's showing how awful that is. Someone so good to us someone so gracious, so loving to us, that to sin against them actually show, that to show how severe the punishment is actually shows how amazing the God is. So when we ask the question, how does God feel about our sin? He hates it. And it moves him to draw us away from it. He wants his people to return. Notice also this, this whole book that we will look at and, and just the opening. It's not just your sin is awful. Have a nice life. But the fact that there's a warning, the fact that God is speaking is your sin is awful. And God is calling 
to return. God wants us to not experience and live in the sin, but to be able to experience the joy that is life with him. Listen, wherever you are, I asked you, what drew you to God? Now, wherever you are in wandering or in the middle of the day, if there's wandering, for God to call us, for God to even say, your sin is awful, come back, is because he wants us to experience the goodness, the life, the joy, the peace that is with him. Oftentimes, we need to see the severity of our sin, the danger of our sin, in order to be drawn back to God. Because we live comfortably. Oftentimes, we have to, it's kind of like a, I've heard the illustration before of a trampoline. And oftentimes, we have to, the lower you go, kind of the, the, the more that you bounce up, right? You have, to, you have to, at times, go low to get high. That's not a cannabis slogan, but you have, to, you have to sometimes go down and feel the bottom to be able to then experience the goodness and the grace and who he is. And so the severity is important to feel, to see, to hear. Well, what are we actually even talking about? What, what sin? God hates our sin, but what sin? What does sin look like? How do I know if I'm even one of those people? What does sin mean? And oftentimes we misunderstand sin. We can easily think that sin is just kind of these bad things that we do, which is true. We can easily just think that, though. Sin is don't lie, cheat, steal, don't break the Ten Commandments, okay? As long as I don't do those things, I haven't murdered anybody, I haven't committed adultery, I haven't stolen and maybe you've done all those things also, but if you haven't done those things, it can be easy to kind of just go, okay, then I'm, I'm good. And those things are sin, but it's, it's more than just that. And we look at the things that Zephaniah points out, you can see that we're all there. Let's look at what he calls out. He talks about idolatry. And he mentions kind of three different groupings of idols or three different false gods that people worshipped. And idolatry is a concept, worshipping you know, different gods that can, again, be one of those things that seems distant from us in the United States. Go to other countries, a lot of times you still will see statues and things that are there that people bow down to and make sacrifices to and put money in front of or put gifts in front of. But here, a lot of times that's not the case. And so when we hear about idolatry spoken of often in the Bible, it can feel very like, okay, I, I don't, I, I've never met Baal. I don't have a statue to him. I'm good. That has nothing to do with me. But the reason that they had all those things is actually very similar to the idolatry that we experience in our life. Because Baal, this is a fertility god, which means that they wanted their crops and they wanted their harvests to give them essentially prosperity, financial wealth and prosperity. They wanted, they, they made sacrifices and prayed and asked for abundance in the harvest and all of these things so that there would be prosperity. They would be able to enjoy wealth and riches Something that we can desire, something that we can struggle with, something that can latch on, an idol is anything that latches onto our heart. Often a good thing, like financial prosperity, a good thing that becomes a God thing, that becomes more important, that becomes ultimate, that becomes something that we have to have, that we need, that we're set on, that we must have. 
Those who bow and worship on the rooftops to the stars in the sky. This is a form of idolatry that is looking to the stars, believing that there can be control. Think even kind of the signs, zodiac, and all of those kinds of things that you're able to say, okay, I can get a control of my world through the stars and what's going on up there. I can get control of my destiny. I can get peace in my life knowing what's going to happen. Anyone want that? Milcom, or another, uh, that's kind of a synonym for another God, the same God, but a name that is used throughout the Bible, Molech, one of the prominent gods that they often struggled with. Molech was a god that people, that is famous for child sacrifice. People would sacrifice their children to this god. Why would someone do that? Because it's saying, I'm willing to give up what's most important to me to get other blessings in my life that I really want. Have you ever been willing to sacrifice other things that are good things in your life? Because there's something else that you really want. Maybe it is your children. And I don't say this to shame anybody if anyone's gone through this, but really, what else, what else is abortion in our country? But saying I'm willing to sacrifice a child for some other prosperity, career, or my goals, or my happiness. But it doesn't just have to be that. Anything that you say, I'm willing to give up what's important and good because I want other blessings in my life. So you probably have never prayed to Milcom or Baal, or, and maybe if you have a rooftop, this is actually kind of like Denver, so maybe you've done that one. Maybe you've gone under the stars and worshiped the sky and the mountains. But, but these same kinds of things are the things that are in our hearts. These are not very distant from us after all. And it was easy for them because their whole culture was filled with it. The people around them. This is, this is not what Judah was supposed to do. This is not what God's people were supposed to do. But the culture around them was filled with this, so it was easy to adopt those practices. It was easy to be influenced by those practices. It was easy to say, okay, we can do that. It's easy for us too. It's easy to be ruled by the idols of the day. To have our joy set on these kinds of things. And that's not all. He also says there's people that pledge loyalty to the Lord, but also pledge loyalty to Milcom. This is not just pure idolatry, but a mixing. Think about this, to pledge loyalty to the Lord. To say, I mean, this, this means these people are going to the temple and worshiping means these people are hearing God's word preached. It means these people are, are praying. It means they're making vows. It means they're saying, our hearts belong to you. We love you. We will follow you to pledge loyalty, right? To say, I am all in with you. And I'm all in with this. I want Jesus. I want church. I want community. I want to read the Bible. I want to listen to Christian music. I want to have Christian friends, whatever it is, to say I want what God has and what God offers. And I want this. You felt that? 
Have you felt drawn to God? And you still want to hold on to these beliefs? You still want to hold on to these practices? You felt drawn to God, but you don't know if you want to obey in everything? You felt drawn to God, but you don't know if you want to completely surrender him. You want some freedom. You don't want to totally lock yourself into one thing. You like the opportunity to have choices. You like the opportunity to really be the one in control, to say, yes, I choose God. I choose Jesus. I choose the Bible. I also choose this teaching. I also choose this practice. I also, and we become the one that is able to assess what we desire. Third, he calls out a category of people that he just says, those who turn back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. That one seems very mundane in some ways. It's not saying that they're actively idolaters. It's not saying that they're mixed loyalty. It's more just painting a picture of people that are doing nothing. It's easy to say, I didn't do anything bad. I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't worship Baal. I didn't worship Molech. I still have got my children. They haven't been sacrificed. I'm not, I, I'm not pledging loyalty to Milcom and to Yahweh. I'm, I'm only here. I'm only doing this. And yet, it's not just about what you don't do. These people do not seek the Lord. They do not actively come to him and inquire of him. If you just say at your job, I didn't steal anything. Okay, but did you make the company money? Did you do your work? Well, no, but I didn't steal anything. If you say to your spouse, I didn't cheat on you at all. Okay, but did, you didn't love me. He's calling out, when you look at all of this judgment that's coming, one of the reasons or one of the categories of people that is receiving this judgment is those that don't seek God. And that word for seek God is just a concept that is saying it's, it's worship, it's reverence, it's repentance, it's thankfulness. It's just to have God as an active part of your life where you are knowing him, living in relation to him, pursuing him, talking to him about life, about decisions, about choices, about people that you are actively bringing your whole life to God and saying, God, I am seeking you to be a part of everything in my life. That is a proactive faith versus just I'm not doing these things. But isn't that so easy to miss? Isn't it so easy to go a whole day without seeking God? Without saying, God, thank you for this. God, I'm sorry for this. God, wow, I appreciate this about you. God, help me. I'm not sure what to do with this situation or these people. God, I need your help. Would you give me strength? Isn't it easy to go a day without doing that, to go a week without doing that, to go a month to go seasons of life where we are Christians and yet practically atheists. Christians who believe that God is all-powerful, all-loving, all-present, involved, listens to our prayers, speaks to our life, and yet we're not really engaging with him like he is. 
it's easy to live as functional atheists, whether that's a day or month or years of life. And he calls out this group of people that don't thank God, that don't ask for help from God, that don't pursue God, that aren't trying to obey God and bring in every part of their life and say, God, what does it mean here? What does it mean here? And then the next group is really just how our sin affects other people. And he only calls out these two things, but he says those that fill their master's house with violence and deceit. And this is kind of the final piece that he puts on there, which is that whatever we believe, whatever we worship, it's always going to flow out into how we relate with other people. It might be violence, might be deceit, it might be other things. But whatever gods that we worship, if you want your peace and your prosperity, your control of your world, if there's things that you are willing to sacrifice even more important things for, if you're not seeking God actively, ultimately, that always leads to hurting of other people. Our selfishness, our tempers, our impatience, it always leads to hurting other people. And so you see this passage, God hating sin. But what sin are we talking about? And it's, if you look at it, what does it look like? And in some ways, what I think is, it's very basic. It's very basic things. It's very, it's, it's very relatable things. Sins against other people, not actively pursuing God, wanting things in our life like prosperity and comfort and peace and control. And they can be very normal, basic things. Things that everyone around us is already doing and just kind of the culture we live in that's normal. It's what our neighbors are doing and our friends are doing. It doesn't seem that the condemnation here is so crazy of things. But it's a generations of people that have gone decades living in these patterns. Living distant from God, though claiming to have him. This is why when Jesus shows up in the New Testament... And he says things like, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. And probably a bunch of people said, yeah, of course, Jesus. And he says, I, I'm not done. That, there's a conjunction. But I say to you, anyone that lusts. And then it's like, oh, wait a minute. So all of us. And then he says, you've heard it said not to kill. And probably most people are like, easy. Got it. And he says, oh, but I say to you, even calling your brother a fool, even anger and hatred in your heart. Oh, okay, I guess I've, I've done that. See, Jesus is making sin very normal. He's making it so that really we're all guilty. I, I served on jury duty several years back in Denver and uh, I don't know if you've ever served on jury duty, but when they're selecting the jurors, they ask, the, the different attorneys ask different questions and I'm sitting to see who's going to be on the jury or not be on the jury to kind of ferret out the right people. Like, do you have any family in law enforcement? Or do you know, have you ever, do you know this person? You know, like they kind of ask you questions to, to see. And our, 
you know, judicial system is supposed to be innocent until proven guilty. So they asked a question of all the jurors. Everybody, uh, anyone, does anyone not believe that the person sitting on the stand, the person that was being accused of menacing with a deadly weapon, does anyone not believe that they are 100% innocent? Because we're all supposed to believe they're innocent until proven guilty. Does anyone not believe that they are 100% innocent? No one raised their hands. I raised my hand. They're like, you don't, you don't think they're 100% innocent? I said, I don't think anyone's 100% innocent. And I opened Zephaniah, and I, no, I'm just kidding. I didn't do that. But I, I did say, I don't think anyone's 100% innocent. It's like, I don't think you just grabbed this guy off the street. He, probably something happened. And I think the guy was even like, I mean, he just, maybe I imagined that. But it seemed kind of like he was like, yeah, maybe, you know. And I, that, that is what Zephaniah is saying. All, that's why it says all mankind, everybody, we are all guilty. If you can't find yourself in the passage of things that grab our heart more than God, or not seeking God, or having mixed loyalty, or sinning against other people, then honestly, you're blind. We are all guilty. Which is why the words of Jesus are even more pointed and helpful to say, your heart, even if not your actions. We are all guilty, all of us. And listen, we're not just guilty of wrong. This is why this passage, again, is so helpful, so important. What sin looks like, it's not just that we are guilty of doing bad things. What, what Zephaniah says here as the culmination is that they have sinned against the Lord. See, all of our sin is personal against God. It's not just bad things that we do. It's that all the things that we have done, even if they've been to other people, even if they were in the privacy of our own homes and it didn't hurt anybody, and even if it's no one's business what I do with this or that, it, all of that is sin against the Lord. It is against him, which is why it says they will be consumed by the fire of his jealousy. Because God wants all of you. He wants your heart. He wants your mind. He wants your body. He wants your actions. He wants your choices. He wants your emotions. He wants your goals. He wants all of you. He's jealous. Not in a creepy boyfriend way. He's jealous to say, you belong to me. I made you. I designed you. I am for you. And you are rightly mine. All of you, he wants. And so all of our sin is personal against him because it is us living in a way that departs from him and is living in a way that is not who we were made to be, not who we were designed to be, not in the relationship with him that we are called to be. So sin looks like all these different things, but boiled down, sin is personal. It's betrayal to God. It's cheating on God. It's disloyalty to God. It's rejecting God or simply ignoring God. Now, if I stop there, you might be happy because the sermon would be shorter. But we would miss what we need, which is how can we be saved from sin? Sin is awful. God hates it. And each of us is guilty in so many different ways. 
And when I read the book of Zephaniah, and when I understand and know my own heart, you have to feel, so what can I do? You have to feel a weight that is, if what I do and think and not do is that bad, what, what good could, okay, fine, I'll give 50 bucks. Like, does that make up for it? Okay, I'll, I'll help an old lady cross the street. Okay, so now all of that wrath is you made up for it? We have to feel there is nothing that I can do. We have to feel the severity to see the impossibility of what we can do to escape. How can we be saved from sin? Well, historically for them, it was around 30 to 50 years later that they experienced this destruction that was prophesied. That Babylon came and totally destroyed Judah and the people of God were taken into exile and destroyed. The temple was burned to the ground. Some of them turned to God, repented. But they experienced in that day, the day of the Lord. But Zephaniah is talking about an immediate thing, but he kind of goes back and forth. A lot of prophecy is like this, where they're talking about an immediate situation, but then they also talk about kind of this bigger situation, this bigger day of the Lord that's going to happen, where he talks about Judah and Jerusalem, but then he also talks about all mankind and the whole earth. So it kind of often goes back and forth, where one thing is kind of like a picture of the ultimate thing. And so they experience the judgment and destruction. Now... There's two ways that we can think about this day of the Lord, two ways that we can really be saved from the sin that we have and the judgment that comes on the day of the Lord. First is that Jesus says when he came that this day will still come. If you were here when we were going through Luke, Jesus talks about the day of the Lord that is going to come. When this full destruction will happen, when God's ultimate judgment and justice will finally come to the earth where every wrong will be righted, every wickedness dealt with. That day will come. And so one message that you might need to hear of how you can be saved from sin is if you are not a Christian, is to turn to Jesus, to turn to him, to confess your sin to him, to ask him to give you his salvation, so that when that day comes, it doesn't come upon you. Because God's ultimate justice will come, and there will be no escape. The second way that we can understand the day of the Lord is that the day of the Lord came on Jesus. The day of God's justice and wrath came upon Jesus. Which means that all of the sin that you and I have, all of the sin, if you're a Christian, all of the judgment that you deserve, that Zephaniah talks about, all of the, the justice of God that, that we rightly deserve for wandering away from God, for idolatry, for not pursuing him, for all of these things, the justice and the judgment of that on the cross came upon Jesus. This is how Peter says it about Jesus. He himself bore, took on our sins. 
So Zephaniah is saying sin is awful and it deserves all these ju- this judgment. And we have sinned against the Lord. So here is why this happening. And Peter says, Jesus took, bore our sins. Jesus took on himself, in his body, on the tree, the cross, so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, not ours, by his wounds, you have been healed. For you are like sheep going astray, but you have now returned, it's that word, to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Saying that Jesus took all of that on, on himself for us. All, the ju- all of the hatred that God has for our sin. All of the judgment that we rightly deserve for our sin. Jesus took it upon himself. Every awful thing described in the book of Zephaniah. Every awful aspect of God's judgment, and I don't mean awful as in that it's wrong that God does it. I mean awful as that you look at it and it's, it's a devastation. Every awful thing that Zephaniah says will come to sinners, Jesus took it. And I, I won't read every single one of these, but if you go through Zephaniah and the things that he says, I will completely sweep away everything. Jesus was swept away. I will cut off mankind. It even uses that language of Jesus in the New Testament, that he was cut off. Even on the cross, he cries out to God, why have you forsaken me? That physically in pain, but spiritually even, there's a moment where he is separated from God, cut off from God. That Jesus had God's hand stretched out against him. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. Jesus became the sacrifice. Jesus was punished. There will be an outcry. There's this wailing. There's this Jesus on the cross. It says, cries out with a loud voice that the warrior's cry will be bitter. Jesus is crying in pain. Their wealth will become plunder. Their house a ruin. Jesus had all the riches of God's kingdom and left it to come to this earth and all of it plundered. All of what he had even on this earth taken away from him. A day of wrath on the cross. A day of trouble and distress on the cross. A day of destruction and desolation Jesus took upon himself. A day of darkness and gloom. Literally, it went black on the cross. A day of clouds and total darkness. A day of distress. Their blood will be poured out like dust. And their flesh like dung. That happened to Jesus. The Lord's wrath consumed by the fire of his jealousy. Complete and horrifying end. All of that came upon Jesus on the cross. Which means it doesn't have to come upon us. Which means if you're a Christian, all of this judgment went to Jesus on the cross for you. And so now you live in forgiveness. You live in grace. You live in salvation. You live in security. You live in freedom. You live in God's love. All of his justice and wrath, Jesus took it. See, I think this is helpful because we know Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and yet a lot of times we don't understand sin. We don't understand the severity of sin. We don't understand how awful it is. We don't understand what it even is. And Jesus took all of that. That's what it means that Jesus died for your sins. Jesus experienced all of that, though we should. 
And now, why the gospel is such good news is all we have with God is reconciliation and peace and love and freedom. And we know that if God would do that to his very own son, that he is for us in the ultimate way. If he would give us this gift, then our sin doesn't define us anymore. And we still sin, but we don't have to bear the punishment of it. We know God hates it and wants to draw us to experience all of his goodness and joy, but we know that we don't have to experience the wrath anymore. We know that we have grace because Jesus paid the price for us. Now, here's what this means. I'm just going to close with this. He says this line. This is actually the only command in the whole thing. Be silent in the presence of the Lord God. It's the only command in this section. It's just a lot of judgment and woes. But he does say this. Be silent in the presence of the Lord. Because to reflect upon all of this, how, how can we not? And so as we take communion, I want you to take a moment, as we always do, to be silent and listen. Reflect on where is there sin in your life that you are comfortable with? Ask God to speak to you and just be silent. Where is there sin in your life that you're comfortable with? You're okay with? Where is there sin in your life? Idolatry, not seeking Him. Where He's calling you to return to Him. Where do you need to see the sin? And where do you need to reflect upon his salvation more? Maybe it's to just be silent and ask him to remind you of the horror of sin, but to then move your eyes from that to see the beauty of his grace. Maybe that's where the silence is, is you just need to see, you did all that for me. You took all that for me. None of that comes now against me. Where do you need to just be silent and reflect on his salvation? So take this time and be silent in the presence of the Lord. Ask, ask him to speak to you. Ask him to show you. And then speak, confess to him. Confess to other people later today if you need to and return to him. We, we all want life with him and whatever it was that first drew us to him. And today, and every day, but listen, today, and I, there's probably even some of you that weren't planning on coming today for some reason. I, I, you know, there's something that you're like, ah, I don't think I'm gonna make it. And God drew you today to say, return to me today. We take communion, we remember his body broken and his blood shed and every horrible piece of judgment that Zephaniah says came upon him. He bore our sins in his body so that we could have life and joy and freedom and peace with God. So take some time. I'm gonna ask, just reflect. Take, we're gonna take maybe double what we normally do. Be silent in the presence of the Lord.
If anyone wants prayer, I'll be in the back and would love to pray for you, whether that's for healing or anything going on in your life. Father, would you speak to our hearts right now? As we are silent, would you communicate your conviction, Holy Spirit, where we need that and the beauty of your gospel and grace because we all need that. Let us hear your voice. Amen.